Morning, church. Um, I just want to pray before I start. Heavenly Father, I just pray this morning that you will open our ears to your, to your message. I pray that the words I speak will be the words you want us to hear. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, so has anyone looked at a pigeon recently? Um, I don't know if anyone has started off a preach by talking about pigeons. Um, See if I can find a picture of a pigeon up here. Ah, there it is. Isn't it beautiful? Um, now, you probably see pigeons all the time. Um, you probably, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm saying, have you looked at a pigeon recently? I don't, mind if you, I don't mean, have you seen a pigeon? I mean, have you really looked at one? Um, we see them all the time. If we go, uh, when people used to be in Watford High Street and, the, and all the takeaways were open, we used to see all the pigeons around. There were loads of them. Some people very unfairly call them vermin. Um, but, you know, sometimes, I suppose when you've got thousands of them in Trafalgar Square, they can become a bit intimidating. Um, but the fact is, the pigeons are beautiful. Um, and, in fact, Megan told me when I got here this morning that they are on the top ten list of beautiful birds. Uh, and you can see why. That is just so plump. They've got such a lovely shape. They've got um, beautiful iridescent colouring around their necks and throats. They, they really are quite beautiful. Um, but we just take them for granted. We are so familiar with them. We see them all the time. We don't even think about how beautiful they are. And we don't give them a second look. So today we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. And... Um, we could get rid of the pigeon now, actually. Uh, thank you. Um, the trouble with the Lord's Prayer is that, like the pigeon, it's so familiar to us, we, we tend not to see the beauty of it. Um, and this can be even more the case because the words in the phrases of the Lord's Prayer can be difficult to understand. We quite often have a rough gist of what they mean, um, but we gloss over the meaning and we're missing the riches of this prayer that, after all, Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer to pray. Um, I still remember the first pray I prayed. It was um, the God bless mummy, God bless daddy prayer. And I can't actually remember a time when, uh, well, obviously not now as an adult, but when I was little, I can't remember a time as a child when I didn't pray it. Um, I was probably two or three when my mum taught me uh, to say that, and I used to say it every night. And then um, as soon as I was able to, my mum taught me the, the Lord's Prayer as well. And I remember that was a lot tougher, um, you know, to understand the words. And I know my mum explained it to me, but it was still tough to understand. But I used to say those two prayers uh, every night, like, probably every night. I can't remember a time when I didn't say them as a child at night time. Um, and, you know, I, I remember saying them, but I also remember that it was almost like a, a routine. I would sort of like whip through the God bless mummy, God bless daddy prayer, and then I'd whip through the Lord's prayer, and then I'd go to sleep. Um, I can't, although I tried to understand the meaning of the Lord's prayer, I didn't understand it as well as I understood the God bless mummy, God bless daddy prayer. That obviously meant so much to me. Um, and uh, it was a case of reciting the words, I think, rather than really praying it from the heart. And the Lord's Prayer is probably the most repeated set of words ever. I th think it is. I c can't prove that, but we think it's probably the most repeated set of words ever. 
Um, but one of the reasons it can be difficult to understand is because every single phrase draws on a whole swathe of biblical teaching. So it's quite difficult for us to understand um, how Jesus was showing us to pray unless we know the Bible really well and we understand the scriptures that Jesus was drawing on. So we need to look elsewhere in the scriptures sometimes to find the richness of each phrase. Now, we could spend weeks, we could spend weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer. Um, so to go through it in one morning is going to be a bit of a stretch, maybe a bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm hoping that by the end of this morning, we should all have a deeper understanding of, of the meaning of each phrase so that we'll be able to pray the words the way Jesus wants us to pray them. And I hope we're also going to, you know, I'm also going to try and uh, go through the flow of the prayer because Jesus gave us this prayer in the order that it is for very specific reasons. There is a real flow to this prayer that it's really helpful for us to appreciate as we work through it. Um, and I also want us to understand how the Lord's Prayer can deepen our relationship with our Father and grow in faith. Something that I have realized over the last few weeks as I've been preparing for this is that every phrase, when prayed properly, as Jesus intended, helps us to deepen our knowledge of, the, of our Father, to appreciate his love, to appreciate his goodness and power. And this is not a prayer just to please God. This is not a case of reciting the words just so that we have ticked the prayer box with God. This is a prayer that we really need to pray. So, the Lord's Prayer, it comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which you can read about in Matthew, verses 5 to 7. And that is, the Sermon on the Mount is a huge chunk of teaching. But basically, Jesus was teaching the people about the kingdom of God, and he was challenging them about how they should live their lives. And then in chapter 6, he talks about prayer, and he tells the crowds not to be like the hypocrites who pray in full view of everyone, and, you know, who use fancy words, or the people that just babble on endlessly, like the more words you pray, the holier you are. Uh, he says in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you want before you ask him. And this, then, is how you should pray. So if we just look at the Lord's Prayer here. Pass the pigeon. There we go. So pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start with our Father in heaven. So we can rush past this line as we hurry into the rest of the prayer. Um, we can be so eager to get to the bit where we tell God what we want, we're missing the riches of just the phrase, our Father in heaven. We're not saying, O oh God, or O oh ruler of the universe, or creator of all things. We're just saying, our Father, our Father. And praying our Father, it's not just a cuddly, warm name to make us feel good. We need to remember why God's our Father. And we need to remember that the only reason we can stand before God and address him as our Father is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. 
Now, when Jesus prayed, he always addressed God as Father. Obviously, he's the Son of God. He always addresses God as Father or Abba. Apart from on one occasion, and I don't know if you can think when that was, it was when Jesus was on the cross, when he was separated from his God, separated from his Father. And we read in Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's only at that point where God has left him that Jesus stops addressing him as my father. And yet Jesus tells us that we can address God as father every time we come to him, every time we pray. And every time we pray our father, we're standing before the most perfect, most good father who loves us beyond anything we can imagine. We've just been singing, you're a good, good father. And that is the father that we stand in front. And to really understand what it means to be able to pray our father, we need to take that time to pause and think about what Jesus did for us, what he did for me, what he did for every one of you. When Jesus died on the cross, he endured the wrath of God. The wrath of God, we can't even imagine how awful that is. And he endured that for us. He endured that separation from his father, which was such agony for him. It was so unbearable for him that even beforehand, when he was started to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was so horrified by what lay ahead of him that he sweated blood. And at any time, he could have backed out. He could have slipped away, but he chose to go through with that to be obedient to the will of God so that we, we who sin, who are flawed, so sinful, he did it so that we could stand before God and call him our Father. In Romans 8, we read, for those who are led, let's see, uh, did, did, no, the last previous one, sorry. Yeah. Here we go. So in, in Romans 8, we, we read, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We are God's children, children of the most perfect father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it's only because of Christ that we are adopted into sonship. And by sonship, I mean because we are children and can stand in front of our father. So we come to him with humility. It means I don't deserve this. I know I don't deserve this, but I come to you in total confidence we're saying, Lord, you could so rightly judge us and condemn us for what we've done, but through Jesus, we can be with you. We're flawed and sinful, but we can be open and we can be without fear or anxiety. We can trust in your perfect love for us. God wants us to feel safe. He wants us to pray boldly, confidently, and knowing that he loves us unconditionally, and, he's, and he listens to us. In 1 John chapter 5, it says, 
Now, this is the confidence we have before him. Next one. Now, this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And in Psalm 34, it says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. You know, I love my children to bits. I absolutely adore them. But I'll be honest, I wasn't always listening 100% when they were talking to me. You know, of course not. Any, any parent knows you've always got other things on your mind and you try and give your children 100% attention, but you just can't. You're always worrying about something else. But our God, our Father, is never too busy. He's never too distracted. He's always giving us all his attention. He's always listening to us. He's our perfect Father in heaven. And now having established that we're standing here, we are safe in front of our Father who loves us, now it's time to adore him. So hallowed be thy name is all about adoration. Now we don't use the word hallowed very much these days. I I remember being taught that it meant holy and sacred, but even those words are, are difficult to really understand. Hallowed be thy name is is encapsulating all the wonderful things about God. It's encapsulating his holiness, the glory of God, the perfect nature of God, his unlimited power. Everything that we learned about God, if you remember the series we did before Christmas, all those things we learned about God's character and his nature, hallowed be thy name, is is adoring those. But Jesus tells us specifically to pray, hallowed be your name. Now, there's a whole theology around God's name that uh, I can't even begin to tackle this morning, and to be honest, I I wouldn't dare to do it. Um, But throughout the Bible, we are reminded of the significance of God's name, that God's name is holy and it's powerful. And before his death, Jesus cries out. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in Proverbs 18, verse 10, you must know this from the the children's uh, song that they sing, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. I mean, there are endless ones. I've got one more, Um, but but it endlessly refers to to God's name. In Psalm 115, it says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, it is, it is difficult to understand, hallowed be your name, and it's, it's helpful to look back at the wisdom and teaching of Luther and Calvin, who were sort of great teachers of prayer and, and devoted so much of their time to, to, to sort of revealing uh, how to pray. And Luther points out that in praying, hallowed be your name, we're praying that our Father will keep us from dishonoring his name, that we will use his name with reverence and awe and demonstrate that in the way we live our lives. Calvin said, to sanctify the name of God means nothing else than to give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name, so that men may never think or speak of him but with the deepest veneration, with the deepest veneration. So how do we adore God? 
I mean, does God need us to adore him? He's God. Is he sitting there waiting for us just to adore him? Well, adoration is about love. And Jesus asks us to adore God daily because in doing so, we increase our love for him. Now, if you've ever been in love, you know how you constantly talk about the thing you love. I mean, if you haven't been in love with a person, perhaps you're in love with a football team. You probably talk about it all the time. Um, we, we list all the wonderful things about the person that we love. Um, I don't want to be nauseating, but you know, Paul and I still text each other every morning when we get to work, because we're now working in different places. Um, and we're almost trying to outdo each other with lovely things we say about each other. And uh, you know, we constantly think about all the, the lovely aspects of the person you love. And repeating all the things you love about someone reminds you and sort of enhances our love. Adoration helps us to love God even more, to, to deepen our relationship with him. And again, this is not something God needs from us. It's for us. Think about the things we struggle with. Think about perhaps you struggle with, uh, you know, all, all the sins, struggling perhaps with alcoholism or with addiction to, to other things, workaholism, anger lying. You know, we long for freedom from these things. And we come to God saying, please help me not to keep doing whatever it is that we struggle with. And the trouble is we want to be free, but we love these things more than we love God. And the only way for us to have freedom is to love God more than we love our sin, more than we love our egos or our status or our money. And by constantly adoring our Father, as we allow ourselves to sink deeper and deeper in love with God, we start getting our priorities right. And we start to love him, not for what he can give us, but loving him for himself. So, so far, we've spent time acknowledging our God, standing humbly in front of our Father, um, praising God for his holiness. And Luther very neatly leaves us from hallowed be your name, into your kingdom come. And he teaches that we're now called to pray that the glory of God's name that we've just been adoring will spread across the world. That through glorifying our Father by the way we live our lives, others will come to know him and love him and the kingdom of God will increase and spread across the earth. So here we're praying, may the whole of the earth see the glory of your holy name. May your kingdom come. And when all people on earth recognize the glory of God's name, then God's kingdom will reign over all the earth. Um, the idea of kingdom goes, goes right back to Genesis. God has dominion over all the earth. Um, and we see this throughout the scriptures. We see God, it says that God rules over all creation. Psalm 103 says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom reigns over all. And then in Psalm 47, it said, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. But it's also a bit of a mystery because we know that John the Baptist proclaimed in Matthew 3, 1 to 2, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus himself, um, Jesus himself uh, prayed that. He used to tell his disciples, as you go, preach this message, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. So the mystery is that the kingdom is here, God reigns over heaven and earth, but it's not fully here yet because not everyone sees it. Jesus is our king 
and he brings authority over all the land. But sometimes it feels that there is so much evil in the world and we long to see that wiped away and replaced by the kingdom of God. And we need to be praying your kingdom come so that we can see that happening. At the end of time, we, we, we know Jesus will return and we know that God's kingdom will reign over all the earth. Jesus says in Mark 13, at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. We know that it's at some point in the future, God's kingdom will come. Everyone will see it. And he says, we will send out the angels to gather his elect from four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. But Jesus also says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So one day, Jesus will come in glory, and every knee will bow. But we can, and we must, make a difference now. We can't really say that we know the joy of relationship with our Father without also wanting salvation and for the joy of that relationship for our neighbors. You know, as we deepen our love for God, we're going to become transformed in the way we think, the way we act, and God's priorities are going to become our priorities. We need to be constantly petitioning our Father, your kingdom come, praying for the nations, praying for the whole of the earth to see the glory of God's holy name. Jesus commands us to do this. We prayed in hallowed be your name for us to love God and demonstrate the glory of his name. And now in your kingdom come, we're praying for the whole earth to see that glory. But there is more to praying the Lord's Prayer than just saying and meaning the words. No matter how deeply we mean the words we pray, we must remember that when we pray, we're committing ourselves to a certain lifestyle. Prayer is vital, but so is action. And as we move on to the next part, your will be done on earth as in heaven, more than ever, we're committing ourselves to God's will. And I find this part of the Lord's Prayer challenging and scary. I'll be honest, this is a really big prayer. This part is a really big prayer. I'm praying that God's will be done, but maybe God's plan is for it to be done using me. Um, are we prepared for this? We've just prayed your kingdom come, but perhaps God wants to send me to Mozambique or somewhere like that for, uh, you know, for that to happen. This is really challenging. And when we pray God's will be done, we're praying for our obedience to God's call. We're praying for strength to meet what God asks us to do, for faith to go willingly where we're asked, even though we can't imagine how we'll do it, and even maybe that we don't want to do it, for faith to go when we don't understand God's plan, but just to trust him. That is quite a challenge. But fortunately, Jesus shows us how to do this, and this is... Um, this is one area of the Lord's Prayer where we actually see Jesus doing this. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays three times in Matthew 26. He prays, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus has asked his disciples to wait up with him while he prays, but they're asleep. 
it's dark and he's alone. It says that as he prayed, a great sorrow came down on him. And I don't mean he was just sad. This is a great sorrow that troubled him. And it's not just that he's going to die. Jesus as, is well prepared for the fact he's going to die. He's talked about it. He knows what God's plan is. But the clue is when he talks about the cup. And the cup represents God's wrath for our sins. We talked about this earlier on. This is the most terrible punishment for us that Jesus has been asked to take in our place. The separation from his father that is such agony for Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus realizes he knows what is to come and he's beginning to experience the horror of what awaits him. And in his agony, in his fear, in his shock, he asks God to take the cup away from him. Father, take this cup from me, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is about to face something infinitely more terrifying than anything we will face. And he's going to face it so that we don't have to face the wrath of God ourselves. He's horrified to the point of sweating blood, but he still submits to God's will. And there is a lesson here for us when we pray, your will be done. Jesus demonstrated obedience, integrity. He was completely honest about the fact he didn't want to take that cup. And, but he also exhibited trust at that moment. He was, had total obedience to God, no matter what the cost to him. He had total integrity in being honest with God at that moment and that acknowledged his fear, that he was terrified, that he was horrified by what lay ahead. And he demonstrated his trust by going through with it. Jesus knew that he could trust the perfection. He knew he could trust the righteousness of God's plan. And when we pray, your will be done, we need to pray, to pray with that obedience, with that integrity and trust too. And how can we trust God? Well, you can trust people when you know that you have absolutely confidence in their love for you. And we can know that God loves us more than we can imagine. And he would never do anything that's not the best thing for us. We can trust his will completely and pray, your will be done. So we have... We have adored God. We know he's our father. We have reset ourselves to start to have, to start to appreciate that God has a perspective, perhaps with his will that we don't have. And after these things, after we've gone through these, these phrases and these, these types of prayer, Jesus tells us to now come to the Lord with the things we need. It's often the part that we're racing towards, the petitionary prayer, uh, to tell God what he needs to give us. But Jesus tells us to pray the other parts first. So first of all, with give us this day our daily bread. Have you noticed it's not give me this day my daily bread? Jesus is asking us to pray not just for ourselves. Being part of the kingdom of God puts us in community. We need to pray for our neighbors too. Um, and daily bread... Well, I'm sure many of you, it will remind you of the, the manna that God provided each day to the Israelites in the wilderness. They were dependent on God every day. Jesus is telling us to come to God every day for everything we need. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer in the way Jesus intended, when we come to him every day and we recognize our dependence on him, it brings us into a deeper 
closer relationship with our Father. We become more aligned to his will. God longs for us to come to him every day. And this, is, this for us is part of our journey of faith. This is how we deepen our faith, we deepen our trust. It's how it allows us to, to trust God when he asks us to do things that, that we don't think we can do. And I think there's another aspect to this. I've heard people say, well, if God knows everything, why doesn't he just give us what we need? Why do we have to keep asking him every day, coming to us? If he really loves us, why isn't it just there? And um, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, there are more than two reasons, but there's a couple of reasons I want to mention about this. And if if we were to have everything we wanted, if we didn't have to come to Jesus every day... Um, we would start to feel rather self-sufficient. If we have everything, then we just feel that we can, we can manage it on our own. When we start to feel self-sufficient, we're saying that we're more powerful than God. And obviously we're not. We need to remember that we're not. You know, if you, if you only come to God when you need something big, like someone's really ill or you have sudden sudden crisis... But as far as your daily bread, you still think, well, I can manage that on my own. I'm fine with that. That's not dependence on God. And the second thing, I think, is to do with his love for us. God loves us more than we can ever comprehend. And that's not about giving us everything in advance. We've got to appreciate that God has a wisdom and a perspective that we don't have. Now, my son Lawrence is at uni. And he lives on a very tight budget, like, like most students. And you know what? I, I love him to bits. And if, if I had loads and loads of money, I'd love to give him loads and loads of money. I'd love to give him 1000 or 2000 a month, and then he wouldn't have to worry, and he could do what he likes, and he could buy his food in Marks and Spencers and all the rest of it, you know, all those things. But as it was, um, I mean, I didn't have that choice, but as it was, we sat down, we worked out his income, we worked out a budget, and I give him just enough money to make men's ends meet. And it's tough for him, but he's learned so much discipline through it that it will stand him in good stead for the rest of his life. And his life will be better as a result of this struggle that I've allowed him to endure. And obviously, you know, if he comes to me, I'm a loving parent, not as good at it as God, but I'm a loving parent. If he comes to me and he needs something, then of course I'll provide. And sometimes I send him treats to the post just to remind him that I love him. And it's a bit like that with God. Matthew 7, verse 11. uh, It says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Nothing delights our Father more than to give us good things. But we don't have God's wisdom and his perspective. We can't possibly know what's best for us, but he does. Tim Keller summed this up beautifully. And, you know, if you only get one thing from today, please remember this, because I, I, this was a real sort of, uh, this, this sort of changed the way I felt about it. He says, God gives us everything we would have asked for if we knew everything that God knows. I'll say it again. God gives us everything we would have asked for if we knew everything that God knows. And sometimes if we spend enough time praying the first half of the Lord's Prayer, if we seek God's perspective, we might realize that some of our needs aren't actually needs after all. Now, of course, sometimes our hearts break over prayers that seem unanswered. 
you know, we prayed so much for some of our church family, for Linda. We're still praying for Mika. We pray for Lorraine. It massively challenges our faith, and it's a deal breaker for many people. For some people, it's like, God's not answered my prayers. What's the point? Now, sometimes we look back later on, and we can understand how God did answer our prayers, and sometimes we won't know until we meet Jesus in heaven. It's really hard. It's really hard. But as we come to appreciate the extent of God's love, a love so great that he sent his own son to die for us, as we deepen our understanding of his grace and mercy, his holiness, his wisdom, his perfect righteousness, we will learn to trust him and we will trust that he hears our cry. 1 John says, this is the confidence that we have. Hope I've got this. Yes, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we need to pray with confidence every day. We need to be assured of our Father's love. We need to be assured of his power. And we need to be assured that he hears our prayers. And we also need to come to him humbly. We need to recognize that he has a perspective that we just can't fathom. We need to trust in his knowledge that his love for us is so infinite that he will always answer in the way that is the very best thing for us. Now, the prayer team has a WhatsApp group. And it's not just for admin. It's also evolved into a tool for encouraging each other, for sharing words that the Lord gives us, for prophecy and for prayer. And recently, many of us have been hugely convicted of the need to pray for repentance. It's come up a lot, a sense that God is really active and has great things that he's about to put in place. Um, but that we need to repent first in order for his plan to be rolled out. So through Jesus, we've been forgiven for our sins. We know this. This is why we can stand before God our Father, so that we can stand blameless in front of him. But Jesus also wants us to experience freedom from sin. And do you see the difference? It's not just about the fact that we're forgiven. We need to turn back from the sin. We need to stop doing it again. We need to be free from addictions that are destructive for us. Now, many of us will be thinking, well, you know, I don't murder. I don't steal. Um, I don't have huge drinking binges or any of that. I'm faithfully married. But I'm not just talking about about the obvious things like that, things that we call the big things. Um, all sin, no matter how small, is destructive for us. It makes us dissatisfied. It makes us angry. It makes us unhappy. And that's just not what your father wants for you. It's not what our father wants for us. And do you ever get angry about something in your head, even though you wouldn't actually say it? I mean, I know I do this. I've, I've kind of got a handle on my temper most of the time. I, I don't blurt out angry things to people but sometimes I still think them in my head and that's that's a sin you know I would love to be free from that I would love to be free from that or do you feel dissatisfied because you saw an advert where someone had a really clean open plan house and yours feels cluttered and grubby and small I've been there too or think you might be better at doing something than your boss and you don't understand why you didn't get it instead you know, all these things eat away at us and they prevent us from enjoying all the good things that God has given us. It's good to be reminded of this. 
after we've asked God to give us our daily bread. And when we pray, forgive us our sins, or sometimes it's trespasses or sometimes debts, we're really talking about the same thing. We really need to be soul-searching about our sin. And that's not because God wants to beat us up or make us feel worse, but it's because he wants us to be free of it all. Tim Keller did a whole sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. And the section on forgive us our sins, he uses Psalm 51 as an example of how to pray. Now, we don't have, to, we don't have time to go into that, but Psalm 51 is, is David's prayer of repentance after Nathan the prophet has pointed out to him about his sin in um, having the affair with Bathsheba and then uh, sort of facilitating uh, Bathsheba's husband's murder um, in battle. And uh, in that in that sermon, Tim Keller says that in order for us to properly repent, there must be no blaming others, no diminishing our sin, and we have to accept complete responsibility. And that's what David does in this Psalm 51. I do urge you to read Psalm 51 because uh, it's an amazing process that David goes through, which, which sort of mirrors what we should be going through when we're asking, when we're trying to repent. No, to repent, we have to be completely honest about the extent of our sin. No blame shifting. No saying it was just a roll of sellotape and they're really not going to miss it at work. We have to accept that there is no scale of minor sin to big sin. If we try to minimize it, well, we're not really sorry, are we? If we're trying to minimize what we've done and to make excuses, we're not sorry. We just feel justified about the way we behaved and then we're not going to stop doing it. We're not going to be transformed from the inside, which is what we really need to do to be free of that. We've got to be completely honest to ourselves in order to be honest in front of God. We might be able to hide our sin from others, but of course God knows everything. And we've got to think there's a difference also between being sorry for the sin and just sorry for the consequences we suffered as a result of it. You know, if you get a, if you get a, a not a parking ticket, a, a speeding ticket, and you're really sorry about that. Are you sorry about the fact that you've got a fine and some points on your license? Or are you sorry about the fact you were speeding? Or are you saying, well, I know, but I was only doing 37 and, you know, all the rest of it. We've got to realize, are we feeling sorry? Are we feeling sorry for ourselves? When we sin, we're saying that we love sin more than we love God. And we need to get that into perspective. And then after that, of course, we're asked to forgive others. And again, that's because God doesn't want us to be eaten up by anger, by hurt, by pain. It's only when we forgive others that God can heal us, that we can be, we can be healed from that pain. So we need to remind ourselves that we have to work and we have to come to God and we have to ask him to help us as we forgive others. I'm really aware of the time here. So I'm just going to try not to spend too long on lead us not into temptation. And Tim Keller describes this section of the Lord's Prayer as the struggle, as the struggle. It's really in two parts. We're praying, firstly, when we talk about lead us not into temptation, we're praying about the, to help, for God to help us resist the temptation within us, the flaws that we have that lead us to sin. And then secondly, Jesus tells us to pray for God's protection for evil from the outside. And I'm going to concentrate really on the temptation within us, we know that when we ask for God to deliver us from evil, we're asking for protection from the evil one, and we need, we need to do that regularly. But let's realize what we have to do about lead us not into temptation. Hopefully you can see how this follows on from forgive us our sins. We've asked God to forgive us for what we've done. We've repented from our sin, but now we're asking him to help us from falling back into it again. 
We're all flawed. David says in Psalm 51, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I'll come back to the next one in a second. So we're all sinful. Only Jesus was without sin. We need to ask our Father to help us in this constant struggle. We know our Father loves us. So why are we so tempted into wanting the things we don't have? If we needed them, God would give them to us. Or why are we so tempted to do the things we shouldn't do? In Psalm 73, the psalmist is struggling with temptation. He's envious of the wicked people around him and he's, who he sees as having so much more than he does. He's angry and he says in verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. He's wondering why he's resisting temptation when all the people that don't bother resisting it are doing great. Giving into temptation, though, is a short-term thrill and a long-term guilt. And our Father doesn't want us to live like that. He wants better things for us. He doesn't want us to just to be happy, to have that quick thrill. He wants us to be holy, because only then can we really enjoy everything he has for us. And how do we resist the pull and attractions of the world, of money, of status? All those things fade away. Why would we put them first? Why would we put them before God? Well, we need to run to God in this part of the prayer. Run to him and reorder our priorities. In, in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. We need to understand what we have ahead of us, the eternity we have to God, with God. We need to grasp God's hand and we need to turn to worship and prayer. And then God will help us to resist temptation. We need to invest in the eternity we have when our earthly lives are done. God is full of grace. He will persistently hold on to us despite our selfishness and our self-obsession. At the end of the psalm, the psalmist comes round to realizing all that he needs is the love of God. And I think this verse is a, a really good way to sum up what we get from the Lord's Prayer. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I just want to pray quickly. Heavenly Father, I just pray that we will pray the Lord's Prayer from our hearts. We will pray it the way that Jesus wants us to pray. We pray for a deepening of our relationship with you, Lord. We pray for deeper understanding. And we pray for a deeper holiness as we come to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.